From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you America to finally get a real-time payment system by 2024. Klarna's new multi-billion dollar valuation, and Taiwan joins Asia's digital banking push with three new online licenses. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 347 of Fintech Insider. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kachansky. How's it going, Sarah? It's good. It's been a good day. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I had to ring the student loans company and I didn't because I was so busy at work. So that's a good sign of how much we've got on in the research team at 11FS and a bad sign that it means I have to speak to the student loans company tomorrow, which is never fun. Well, that'll be an interesting story next week then <laughs> yeah. of uh, student loan scandal. Oh. <laughs> Uh, and as, as always, uh, we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests. We have making his new show debut, Simon Dix, co-founder and CEO of DX Solutions. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. Busy day. Hot, warm. I hear sweaty you. in London. I hear you had a, um, uh, like a, a session with David earlier in the week where you were talking business. Ah, yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, we spoke um, spoke quite a lot about sort of AML, compliance, horrible, ugly world of criminal activity. Oh, that sounds like David. And (laughs) making a welcome return, we have Joy McKnight, Managing Editor at The Banker. Hey, Joy. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, actually. It's nice. uh, End of the week, almost. Oh, end of the week. And Richard Davies, COO of Revolut. Hey, nice to be back. Uh, been a long, long time, so uh, overdue, and uh, yeah, looking forward to the show. I know, like two job title changes yeah. since, hey, uh, hey. since you were last on, I think. It's definitely, I'm a fast-moving guy in a fast-moving <laughs> place. <laughs> Welcome to the show, great to have you with us. Let's get started. Right, first up, America to get real-time payments by 2024. So the Federal Reserve have said it will build and operate a real-time payment system by 2024. This is real future-looking stuff here. Big banks have argued that the Fed's involvement will slow adoption of real-time payments in the US, which already lags behind much of the rest of the world. And small banks and credit unions, feeling this system will not treat them fairly, have so far refused to sign up to the big bank-owned system. So what do we think? Joy, I guess you've got origins closest to this uh, area. Uh, Well, it's a very interesting development. Obviously, the Clearinghouse has launched its own real-time payments in 2017. Um, The the Clearinghouse has... The mem- is like a membership organization. So it has the big banks on board. Um, They have like about 24 that have signed up to it. I think the Fed is being pushed, maybe by Facebook Libra. That's that's an idea. Um, But I think that it's also trying to create more competition. So it's interesting. But I have to say, as you pointed out, the timeline is maybe a bit long. Yeah, so I, I completely agree with the timeline being a bit long. But when I looked back into it, I thought I've heard this before. And that's because the initial call for comment was only seven months ago. So they've gone, which is, which is actually very fast, believe it or not, particularly for American legislations. They are, I think they are putting some commitment behind it. Um, that said, if anybody knows anything about American regulation, the, the speed at which things move is frightening to even, even people who know about, you know, regulation, which takes time. American regulation is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, well, we spoke to our... America's uh, MD Sam Maul to get some US insight on that. So uh, let's hear from him now. Basically, this is kind of the big banks versus the little banks in the US. You have to remember there are over 10,000 banks and credit unions in the US. Suffice it to say, 
9,950-ish banks and credit unions that aren't part of the clearinghouse are pretty happy to have an alternate method addressing real-time payments that's actually sponsored by the central bank. It does appear you'll have to have a bank charter to access FedNow. In other words, you'll need to be a depository institution. Suffice it to say, tech and fintech companies have roughly five years to work through this issue if they want to use the services or have direct access. For our U.S. audience, just as a frame of reference, the U.K. Faster Payment Program was implemented in 2008. In other words, the U.K. Faster Payment Program will be 16 years old by the time the U.S. Federal Reserve implements their program, FedNow, if it rolls out on time. This is the part where I take a deep, long sigh. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up uh, Sam's point that I just, I've just spotted like further down in the article, I was saying, oh, it's quite quick, but then it is roughly in line with the timetable that the central bank published in 2013. So I take that back. I was, I was being overly optimistic. <laughs> but they, they actually, the Fed set up a working group and they said sort of the outcome of the working group was really like everyone in the, in the US by 2020 should have access to real-time payments. Um, so does that mean through, even, even through, through a private not, system? Yeah, well, that was their recommendation. Right. Right, so to me it is a bit slow uh, in coming. I mean, I guess it's just it's another symptom of a market that needs quite a lot more uh, sort of customer benefit brought to it. I think you look at, um, there's, there's clearly things happening there, things like Venmo already doing some sort of peer-to-peer type um, networks. But, I mean, I look at things like account fees, like overdraft charges, uh, interchange rates, FX fees, I mean, there really is uh, an awful lot of profit being made there um, at customers' benefit, also customers' cost. And uh, I think that really does need some change. Also, the point as well that, that Sam made about um, the fact that you'll have to be a registered bank to use it, so you have to be a deposit-taking institution, which means you need to have a charter and then you need to be a member of the, the Federal Deposit FDIC. I can't remember what that sounds for now. But anyway, it's basically the insurance that you pay if you're a bank. Um, well, that means that most of the most innovative and competitive companies in the States right now, which people are using to make innovative payments to get, you know, to speed things up, won't be able to join it anyway. So, and if they do have to join it, they'll have to go through a long drawn out process of getting that charter, which the regulators in the States show no willingness whatsoever to actually start issuing them. They keep talking about them, but they're I, no, you disagree. Oh, I think I think um, there's, there's definitely openness from some of the US regulators to look at these things. And the hey, point there's, there's there four is years to get there. So the point <laughs> there is, well, is some of the regulators, and that's the other thing about the states. Of course, you've got like four or five different regulators. Well, I think that's. A, I think other. I think we're also being a bit unfair here because we're looking at hey, the UK's got it. The UK fits inside Texas. I mean, <laughs> like uh, most of the European countries fit inside the the US easily. So really what you're talking about here is um, would be the equivalent of a European-wide faster payments clearinghouse for, for but everything. But uh, SEPA? Well, yeah, okay. Say, isn't that what SEPA is? <laughs> yes. Actually, one of the, so one thing that happens here a lot, and people really underestimate it when you go into these working groups, is the pushback doesn't always come from the regulator. It's scary how many institutions, even the most innovative ones, push back and say, we need longer because we're going to need this long to to actually implement that. And if we don't achieve it in this time, then all of our competitors are winning. Mm. Exactly. When you've got 10,000 you know, deposit-taking institutions, credit unions, small uh, mom-pop shop banks, then all of those guys are, are, are going to obviously push back again. They don't want to have massive IT spend. Ideally, actually, the status quo just keeping for them would be a better solution, yeah. wouldn't I, it? I think that's a really good point, actually. The, 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 I mean, you see, actually, in all countries where you get small and mid-sized companies that then get subject to this sort of change, which is 
in some ways trying to drive more competition, trying to drive more benefit for customers. But actually, if you're a small, mid-sized institution with more legacy technology, it's actually very hard then to take the cost of doing it. But I also think that the small, let's say the community bank, a whole, their whole, that whole community and stuff, like, they don't want to have... Um, have to go through another institution in order to get access. They yeah. want to have direct access. Yeah. And I think they've been pushing back against the clearinghouse and its real-time payments network because it's really the big banks, you know, even though it's open to the smaller ones. But I think it comes down to that kind of spend. But the whole thing is I think the Fed will allow those banks to join. And I think they're the ones that are pushing forward. And I completely agree because if you look at the, the systems that have been set up, so it's two, two types of system generally for faster payments. You've, well, for faster payments is what we call it in the UK. But you've got the sort of the, the central the central bank or the regulator organised ones, and then you've got the private ones. So in Australia, they finally had faster payments come in a few years ago. They have a system called MPP, um, which is run by 13 of the biggest banks. But what that means is that if a fintech wants to join, they have to pay up to a million dollars to join this faster, the, the, their equivalent of faster payment, their instant payments, if you like. So it's all very well and good having these private systems, but when you look at those small people who, as I said, are doing the innovation and the competition, they're, they're instantly boxed out by it. So they are. Um, and the first thing I when, I, when I was looking at the article, the first thing I, it went through my mind was, right, it's elitist. You know, it's just, yeah. it's blocking everyone out. But on the flip side of it, uh, anytime you go through any of these things, for example, banks passporting into the UK and wanting to, well, they still can, and wanting to uh, take part in FPS, the whole, the whole program and the whole thing about getting that is really hard because you have to go to one of the existing clearinghouses and then comply with everything they want which is almost impossible because you're talking about, you know, 200-year-old monoliths. So they said the compliance man. It's impossible <laughs> to comply. But, but, I mean, you look at this and you say, look, this is just bits and bytes traveling across a cable. We've got the internet. It's easy. But on the other hand, you say, hold on, this is the integrity of the financial system. This is anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, all of those things. So it has to be super secure and also it's in a highly regulated area that not everyone can join because suddenly if fintechs join willy-nilly, then money's flowing to, to bad places. So it's in, an interesting tension for me because on one hand you say, well, four or five years, like the world's moving on, uh, all of these alternate payment schemes of mm. you know Amazon Pay and Alipay and you know MasterCard and Visa pushing thing, things through. You've got to think, even Ripple as a as a sort of as an example, you've got to think that there will be other networks that come along in that time period that have a good shot at doing something. But I guess as a backdrop, you've always got this pushing things along as well. I, mean, I guess I'm going to help us link to the next story here. <laughs> but I mean, for me, we're talking about this kind of challenge of uh, smaller players, um, cost of doing these sort of things. I mean, is it not true that ultimately many things in FS uh, are kind of a scale game when you get down to it? You've got to be able to raise large amounts of money, you've got to be able to get to scale that gives you efficiency on economies, no matter what your tech stack is, be it legacy or, or new. Uh, and yeah, ultimately, I guess, while there may be thousands and thousands of kind of players trying, only, only a few will actually make it a scale in the long term. Well, you've got to think the US is going to be a bloodbath at some point. Uh, you know, I, I struggle to see how 10,000 deposit takers are going to uh, survive in in a world that's moving towards digital well, there, banking. There is definitely already con- consolidation happening, especially amongst the community banks. So that's that's already happening. But I have to say, some of them exist. You know, it's like a you know uh, like a one street town, and it has a bank in it, and it's a local bank, and it serves local people. And you know, until the big banks actually want to serve those communities or can serve those communities at a proper price point, you just think that th- those still will exist. Uh, do you want to? Yeah, 
going to say, if you think, if you compare it, you know, away from a British model, which is the big banks and some challenges, and put it towards the European model, you know, take Germany as an example, where you have every village has one, has a tiny little regional bank. But some of those have got billions in deposits because they'll have some huge corporation which has never moved the bank. Um, and they, they just come to an agreement that they work together. So then they end up having faster payments between them. And they, that's how they kind of went around it. You know, they created an association. Moving on. Klarna's new multi-billion dollar valuation uh, to help them hit Australia. So this is an article from Finextra. Klarna has raised $460 million in an equity funding round to take their valuation to $5.5 billion. The valuation ranks them as the largest private fintech in Europe. It seems like every week we have a story of like yeah. a new largest f- <laughs> private fintech in Europe. Um, they say they're going to use the funding to crack the US market where they're growing at an annual rate of 6 million US customers. And it will also help them enter Australia and New Zealand with the backing of a new investor Commonwealth Bank of Australia who uh, contributed $100 million to the investment round. Oh, you know how I feel about Australia. Um, <laughs> anything to do with Australia, and I'm on it. Uh, what's interesting to me is, is um, there's two, two interesting points, I think. I will get to Australia in a minute. But one is that just back to your point, Jason, about it seems like every week we have a new, you know, highest valued customer, the next biggest round. When are we going to see some exits? It feels like a little bit crazy at this point. Not that I don't think Clara's got a good business model, but my point about Australia, the buy now, pay later market is mm. so crowded everywhere. So Clara are in the UK, the US, obviously they started over in Scandinavia. Afterpay, which is like one of the most successful Australian fintechs, is in the US, the UK. Um, when MasterCard launched their, um, oh goodness, uh, their MasterCard installment payment services, snappy, um, Afterpay's share price went through the floor. So it's interesting to me that this market feels like it's getting more and more crowded. And I wonder whether the money will be enough to help Klarna come out on top because it's all about habit, right? So if you're Australian and you're used to using Afterpay, are you really going to use Klarna when Afterpay works brilliantly for you? What's the difference to me? So how are Klarna going to crack those markets and how are they going to incentivize people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying that it's Afterpay and Layby, isn't it, are uh, from Australia and New Zealand. So it's kind oh, of yeah, like Austra- a, Austra- going Australia's straight into the home market of... Selling ice to the Eskimos. But if you think about it, Commonwealth Bank is terrified by Afterpay because Commonwealth is an Australian bank, so they're terrified of Afterpay, so maybe this is their way of trying to compete with them. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Afterpay is, is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. It's, it's lauded as one of the most successful companies. And Layby's from New Zealand, so I presume they're in Australia as well. So it's kind of yeah. pretty intense market already. You've got like two of the big three there already. So an interesting move. But there are a couple of things I I really like about Klarna, I guess, more generally. Firstly, that they've taken lending to the point of need. You know, we've we've gone from that, you know, the old uh, catalogue shopping, you know, pay this over 24 months, pay this over 36 months. And suddenly that's being, you know, applied to to digital, to things that you buy online, to, to online commerce. But I also like how they've sort of flipped the business model where it's the retailer that's paying for the credit because, um, I mean, when you look at their business results, um, people who are paying in four, so paying installments, uh, the businesses that uh, that employ that tactic, that uh, pay in installment 
um, mechanism, reported 68% increase in the average order value and a 44% increase in the conversion compared to cards with a 21% higher purchase frequency. So suddenly it's like, you know, that that credit and the credit risk is being paid for by the, um, you know, by the, the seller, by the merchant, which is a, just a lovely sort of flip on that, on the old traditional model mm. of making things work. But to go back to my point about like how many people, how many methods people will use as well, though, the question is if I'm an Australian merchant and I know my customers use Afterpay and it provides that exact service, you know, it, that Afterpay is exactly the same thing as Klarna, am I going to pay Afterpay and Klarna? To accept their to accept their payments and 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 Mastercard yeah, but, or my but it, but you I don't think you can say look there are lots of players in the market therefore Klarna's not got a space you could say the same for Stripe who, oh. have, who have done phenomenally well and have actually grown uh, a variety of different techniques because uh, Klarna do soft search uh, on the kind of credit scoring so you think with the amount of data they've got with the capabilities they've got the the add-on services they're they're building that they're going to be a strong player entering a, a territory especially if they're willing to put a bit of money into it in order to um, to reduce the costs in order to pay for some you know some merchant acquisition in that space I think so you've got two really interesting elements there but the the for me the most important question or the interesting question isn't how are they going to conquer the country? It's which customer segment are they going to focus Absolutely. on in order to win that? Because they're going to have to treat any, you know, like any startup would essentially in that phase. Who are we going to have and who are we going after? And then they'll get it. I think this kind of, you know, they're Swedish, Swedish innovation with American money. It's something we've seen a hundred times and we love it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was thinking about the money. Right, so raising all this money ahead of actually doing an IPO, um, and it, it's just to me interesting that trajectory. And then also we've seen the recent IPOs of the big tech companies that maybe haven't gone as well as they had hoped, and things like that. But the other thing I wanted to bring up was really around regulation, mm. because now the like the FCA just came out recently with its. Uh, uh, rules on buy now, pay later products and things. I think other regulators will also be looking at trying to, yeah. uh, you know, regulate the market a bit closer. The Australian market follows the UK market very closely when it comes to regulation and particularly to the point about data. The Australians are paranoid about data. It's one of the reasons their um, customer data regulation, their open banking basically has, has struggled. So, so listen, I think that point about... Um Regulation and conduct is really important. I mean, for me, there's the seeds of, and I don't know if it's going to happen, like it's probably not there yet, but there's the seeds of like a really big problem here because I guess this primary market is millennials. Um, millennials haven't taken credit cards particularly. This is like the equivalent version of a debt spiral on credit cards mm. if you're not careful. And I don't know quite how, they may be doing it well, but I don't know quite how some of these companies going about affordability assessment for the customer. And, and I think just to build on that point, if you look at the kind of merchants, so Klarna is, is very big with um, ASOS, for example, and many other merchants of that sort. Historically, and um, when you're talking about either those catalogue purchases or buy now, pay later, you'd be talking about something that you probably needed. So buy now, pay later for a washing machine that you really did need or a fridge that you really did need. Should I be using buy now, pay later to buy something from ASOS? Is that kind of how, how oh, the but, model but, should work? But, but there's also a different mechanic with ASOS that mm. people buy things to try on and then return yes. and but, don't want but, to be paying. But the stats on this, right, is the return rate is much lower. Right. So pe- people like the basket size increases by like 25%. The return rate's, I don't know, 25% lower because people aren't worrying about affordability. Right. Yeah. But that does kind of catch up for you at some point. So the real value isn't in the speed of the, trans- in the transaction. It's not in the way that you pay. Rather, I'd say it's really in the psychology of a shopper. Yeah, mm. How much am I committed to do this? If I have to go and get my credit card and put my number in right now, 
I'm thinking about it before I click. If I just have to click and it's getting delivered, I'm done. Yeah. I think the, the final point is going back to Joy's piece on the how much people are raising. You, you've got to feel that there's a, there's a war chest growing thing here for big fintechs. And maybe it's about the cycle changing and about things you know moving along. There seems to just be a lot of people raising really big sums, uh, which we saw previ- in previous cycles just before some big collapses because maybe they think next year is going to be a bit tougher to raise but uh, listen I, kind of we've been no uh, secret around the fact we're going to do something sort of later this year uh, hopefully um set some new watermarks but the i guess the point right is it's not about i think cycle it's it's that point i made earlier about scale and i think there are a few people now that can achieve uh, a fair degree of global scale and fs has always been about scale to a, a large degree so i think that's what you see here people like Lana. great moving on Hong Kongers are reaping the benefits of virtual banks even before their launch. So this is a story in Tech in Asia. Hong Kong's first virtual banks aren't expected to be operational for at least another month, but their customers are already experiencing the benefits. Eight of the region's largest banks will no longer charge fees when their customers fail to maintain a minimum monthly balance, starting with HSBC last week. And Taiwan is the latest country to give out virtual licenses, where three have been allocated to consortiums already. So what do we think? I mean, Hong Kong is traditionally a uh, a massive revenue generator for a lot of banks. There are obviously some really big, interesting consortiums coming along, and it seems like there might be a little bit of defensive uh, moves on fees here. Sure. But at the same time, isn't it, you know, is it just not good business? I mean, you mm. see a potential competitor coming up six months down the line, you see a USP from them and you take it away. And I think that raises the question, you know, can no fees really ever be the only USP? I think it's inter- I completely agree. I think, you know, one of the points in the article is that, like, what reason would people have from le- le- to leave HSBC mm. if HSBC has fees are the same as they are um, for the new digital banks? But then if you look at the UK model, you know, what reason would I have to use Monzo rather than HSBC here? Because they charge the same fees or, or, or fewer or lower, sorry. So I, I, I see the point that, you know, it's a good reaction. All in all, it's going to be good for consumers, right? Because the fees that they charge is Jason uh, suggested in Hong Kong are extortionate to customers just for having, you know, an account of having a minimum balance. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's going to be enough. I don't think money is going to be enough. But I might be wrong. So, completely agree with you there. But for me, you know, I've got grey hair, but I'm clinging to my youth. And the, the for me, the real <laughs> advantage is of the of the new banks, of the challenger banks. It's not the no fees. Mm. It's what that future holds, yeah? Mm. You look to our grandparents' generation, nobody talked about finance. Now everybody talks mm. about it. And it will no longer be a bank. It will be a financial concierge, yeah? And it will be about that user experience and that graphic and how can I do it? I mean, Joy, you must see a lot of these stories in the banker, you know, from around the world. We're seeing Challenger Banks in the UK, in Hong Kong, new licenses in Singapore, now in Taiwan. Mm. What do you make of it all? Well, I have to say I do agree with Sarah. Like, I just think it's it's interesting that they're making this play for the no fees, but it really comes down to uh, customer experience at the end of the day. And so HSBC may may be able to stave off some movement in terms of customers moving to the new challenger <coughs> banks, but seriously, they're going to have to step up their game and things. And I th- I think that's what the play is all around. 
Can, can I just make an interesting point about Taiwan as well, just because that's the second part of that story, just that this, you know, virtual licenses are, are sort of spreading across Asia like a rash, really. Um, but what's interesting to me about the three that have been granted licenses in Taiwan is you've got two Japanese, so Line and Rakuten, um, and all of them are consortiums, which is mm. what we saw in Hong Kong. So half of them in Hong Kong were consortia, consortiums, consortia? Mm. Um Joy's nodding at me. I think I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Look at the journalist. Um, Because that was the only way that the big banks and the merchants could compete. And then the other four in Hong Kong were the big tech players. But it's interesting to me that in Taiwan is, again, this combination of tech players. You know, Rakuten's an e-commerce platform. Line, I believe, started as a messaging platform, although Mm. they do everything now with banks alongside them. I like this kind of interesting model, particularly talking about, uh, to your point, Simon, that... um, you know, it'll become like a financial services hub. Well, if my e-commerce is there and my bank is there and my messaging is there, then you, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more realistic to have that vision. Well, we spoke to Brandon Chung, uh, one of our Jobs to be Done consultants and uh, a follower of Asian banking, to tell us more about this and the Taiwan story. So Taiwan to me is a really exciting space and it could be the market where we can really see the speed which big techs can really move on the banking battlefield. Um, if you look at Taiwan's banking landscape, um, it's relatively fragmented. Uh, the incumbent banks in Taiwan don't have a market dominance with the top four banks only owning about 30% of the market share. So this fragmentation and less captive customer base really gives big tech a real advantage. And I think Taiwanese customers are really ready for a digital banking experience. Uh, if you look at Richard, the digital only bank opened by Taishan bank three years ago, it now has about 600,000 customers. And if we look at uh, the two big techs that got the license from Taiwan, um, Line is a Japanese social media company or social media platform with over 70% of Taiwan's population on it. um, And more than 6 million Taiwanese customers are already using Line's payment platform. So we also need to remember that beyond Taiwan, Line Financial in Japan has quite sophisticated fintech knowledge and product lines that they can easily leverage back into Taiwan. And if you look at the second big tech that got the license, Rakuten, um, it's a Japanese e-commerce giant that's been in Taiwan for over a decade now and have already launched a credit card program with no annual fees uh, with a really strong loyalty program. And they launched that back in 2015. So the bottom line to me is Line and Rakuten are both relatively household names for many Taiwanese customers. Um, Both brands have already launched some form of financial services to Taiwanese customers. So the psychological barrier for customers in Taiwan for using a big tech for banking would theoretically be lower. So I expect both of those companies to move quite fast in Taiwan's banking battlefield. Cool. I now know so much more about Taiwanese banking. (laughs) I just wanted to bring up Singapore because I think Mm -hmm. another part of that story, uh, and I think it was Reuters that uh, that reported it, was that you know the Singapore Central Bank is going to issue up to five digital bank licenses, um, and that ride-hailing Grab Mm -hmm. uh, was considering applying. And I remember speaking to a, a chief innovation officer maybe about a year or so ago. I think actually when I was out in Australia for the uh, Cybos, mm-hmm. um, but talking about what was the main challenges that he saw. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, he's not afraid of the other banks and things, but what he was thinking is that when something like Grab mm. flips into yeah. the banking is really what was going to blow his mind. You've already got all the customers. Mm. Well, I think we, we see that a lot. This, you know, actually those tech players have a much better uh, handle on these intelligent digital services. And when you can layer that on top of the, that, commodity financial product thing they either can partner with banks or do the banking thing themselves 
and away they go. There's suddenly a lot more contextual flavor, a lot more data, a lot more sort of capabilities of delivering services directly to a consumer. I think that's the scary part for banks. It's no longer a product distribution, here's a loan, does anyone want one? When when you've got people who are, who are integrated into their end customers' lives. So moving on, Penta's latest funding round. This is from TechCrunch. Penta, the digital platform for business banking, has raised over 8 million euros in a recent investment round. Holtzbrink Ventures have become a shareholder and they join the existing shareholders of Finleap, a fintech ecosystem player, Fabric, an Italian platform for open banking and fintech services, and of course the management team of Penta. So we spoke to Penta CEO Marco Wenthin uh, to tell us more. Since I joined Penta just two months ago, we simplified the company's legal structure. We abandoned a classical org chart for a unit structure to reflect customers' life cycle demands. We merged with Beezy, a FinDeep SME venture in Italy, and managed to win Holtzbrink Ventures as an investor. All this and being the only native SME neobank in the largest European economy, Germany, gives us the perfect foundation to support companies in their day-to-day business beyond banking. We are close to serve 10,000 companies and are on track for 20,000 within the next few months. The founders of Penta started the company with a goal to solve real problems for small companies. At first, it was to provide an account and standard banking products without the hassle of talking to a non-interested bank clerk and shifting papers. As a result at Penta, we can digitally open a business bank account within a day as opposed to market standards of three to four weeks. However, the story does not stop there. Where traditional banks run out of ideas, we start. So that seemed like a, uh, a manifesto slash ad for Penta. I, I hope they're, they're sponsoring this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yes, that, that was interesting. Um, to, to, to go to the, the story itself and the, the German market and the SME market, um, completely agree with him on the point that the SME market, particularly in new banks, has boomed recently. We've seen it in the UK at the point where I think we're going to see consolidation in the UK pretty quickly. There's an awful lot of offerings out there. Um, you know, Germany is really interesting to me because Germany has not seen that much neobank activity, but yet SME does seem to be taking off. And I was reading, I read this in one of the articles about this story, and this completely passing by at the time. Apparently Deutsche Bank has an SME uh, neobank called I think it's first but it might be fierst because my German accent is terrible um so the German market it seems like SME banks are really where they've started whereas in the UK we started with retail it feels like the the German native new banks have well, gone 26 is <laughs> well well yeah yes but the competition hasn't come so N26 would still say is the... Revolut? <laughs> You're not German, Richard. We're talking about domestic competition. N26 has got there first. But there isn't... The, my point, the ones that are springing up around it are, are SME. So well, I mean, I'm going to have to jump in here. So I have a lot of background of Japenta. I, um, I originally mentored them uh, on Startup Bootcamp, uh, like back when it was uh, just uh, four guys. Um, I kind of was the lead angel investor in their seed rounds. Um, a very, very cool bunch of founders. Um, slightly worried about a bit of a corporate diatribe we got there. So hoping uh, that's not kind of how it's gone. But um, listen, I have got, um, I, I do know some of the guys still there. And I think they're doing great stuff, actually. So I kind of, um, I still got a really fond uh, spot in my heart for them. I hear they're doing actually really great numbers in terms of like growing the customer acquisition, sort of week by week. Uh, so really, really strong performance there. And I think the sort of range of features they're running out is, I guess, the very, really, the very much the sort of stuff that, that sort of um, 
small business wants isn't getting from the German banks. And no, I, I do agree with you. I think there's there's uh, there's room in the in the German market for for more competition there. But I mean, you've you've had a uh, history with SME banking and that commercial side of the banking. What do you see in that sort of market in general? Is is this an area that's going to be disrupted radically? Or yes. No, I mean, I think it needs to be, right? The, the service has been so incredibly poor for so long. I mean, it's kind of refreshing to not be in a, in a bank, right, actually, and be able to talk freely. Um, so you, you kind of look at the, um, in most banks around the world, the small business division and the profitability of that in terms of sort of return on equity measures, it's really, really high. Um, because you're charging fees, um, you charge reasonably high margins on loans, um, and you get actually more deposits than you get loans out the door, which then gets used for lending in the sort of larger company space. And so pretty much every country in the world is really, really overdue for competition and bringing much better things for customers. I'm interested. Sorry, Joy, did you have a point? No. Nope. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm interested. They've decided, I was, I was interested as to why they decided to go to Italy because that felt like an interesting choice to me. But then I realised that they've been merged with an, another Italian company that's also owned by Finleap and they have an office in Milan. Because at first I was like, that doesn't seem like an obvious choice to me. But then on top of that, they merged with a company that's in Italy. N26 has had good good numbers in Italy as well. So maybe that's the next place where the revolution is brewing. I can definitely say like from our own experience, the the market in Italy is really easy to capture because it's lacking, it's, it's underserved, it's lacking, it's lacking its own homegrown services, yeah. And if you want to talk about thousands of small banks, then Italy is a fantastic, another fantastic example. Um, but for me, and I think this is, you know, in terms of in terms of their model and their business, yeah, sure, in Germany, it's going it, to, it's desperately needed. But in order to expand globally, none of the challenges have got their business onboarding process right you know they don't equate for the the nuances of human life because they can't afford to so you're forced you know if you, if you are anything like me that's not standard and have you know three different EAA countries on my books I'm forced to go in branch because challenges weren't you know the first question is mm. prove to me you're living inside the EAA my, my answer prove to me that I'm not you know I, my passport doesn't even have a lot um it's hard and it's interesting to me because I completely believe you. I was just thinking about Starling's most recent. They've rolled out a, a much more advanced, from what I understand, I haven't seen it, but a much more advanced in-depth proposition that's got, you know, you can have, if you've got multi-direct, multiple persons of significant interest. That's right. <laughs> so definitely came further. Definitely yep. has definitely come further. Um, I've just finished uh, an attempt for my UK entity to put like all of the challenges. Mm. And um, it's it was hard. Again, you know, like I say, the, wherever you remove the human, you have to you have to be prepared to digitalize the process to the extent that it needs to be done. So, Joy, do you have any sort of followers and um, uh, readers from from places like Italy? Like, do, do you know uh, much about that region? Um, yeah, so I know somewhat about like obviously in the general sense. I don't cover Europe. I cover more of the technology transaction banking side of things. So we have a Europe editor at the banker. So it's not my specific area, um, but obviously. Like there is tons of banks uh, in Italy, especially the small banks and things like that. There's a consolidation happening already. I actually wrote an article recently on the SME challenges in the UK, obviously because there's the regulatory push as part of open banking on one level, but there's also the RBS remedies packages and things like that. So I was really looking at some of you know some of the challenges that were coming up that were moving, let this, let's say the starlings that are moving from the retail into the SME space and how successful they are, but then also the response of the you know the big banks like NatWest 
launching its metal and things like that and its idea and the whole the whole ecosystem play I guess that a lot of them are looking at which is pulling together different fintechs to actually provide a, a better service so yeah I think it's just at the beginning right so it'll be interesting to see really how it plays out for entrepreneurs and small and medium-sized enterprises. I think one of the, the there's been some great points here I think um the point around how you serve slightly more complex businesses is is a really key one. Uh, I think uh, cracking the sort of really simple semi-freelancer, one-person, domestic-only type market, um, there's some, some really good effort going on right now on that. I think once you tackle into sort of cross-border um, activity, there's clearly there's financial crime risk in that. And how you get that right in a systemic, scalable way is a really, really key problem to solve, that doing that really well will be how people win. Well, on that, we'll be back shortly. Let's take a quick break and you can hear from our sponsors. This deal sets apart a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Clearly the pressure is beginning. British jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets, on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. And welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you love the show, don't forget to pass along the podcast. Tell a friend, spread the fintech love. And if you're a regular listener, please leave us a review. It only takes a minute and it really helps other people find us. Right, let's get on with the show. So first up, HSBC cuts 4,000 jobs, starting with the CEO. To be honest, I'm not sure those two things are connected, but, but let's go with it. So this is a story in Forbes. HSBC follows Deutsche Bank and Citigroup in cutting 4,000 jobs globally. Up to 2% of the bank's workforce will go, with a focus likely to be on senior roles as the company seeks to cut calories, uh, salary costs or even calories. Oh, costs. calories as well. That, that's the, uh, that's the <laughs> catering part of the business. By 4%. In a somewhat unrelated story... John Flint, the CEO of HSBC, is also relinquishing his position after only two years in the role. Flint, according to a company statement, resigned by mutual agreement with the board. Oh, that old chestnut. The reason was presented as the bank needing changes and uh, it must address the increasingly complex and challenging global environment. 
So uh, HSBC, it's interesting um, because we were talking about Hong Kong earlier and HSBC making decisions in Hong Kong to relinquish fees um, there, which is obviously going to hit them in that market. And then the China market more broadly is so complicated for banks right now, what with ev- everything that's going on, whether that's the you know competitors from your, your you know your tech giants or whether that's the general economic situation, which is is changing rapidly. Um, so I, I I kind of buy that you know things have got to change there. I also buy this that like you can be a CEO in a, in a role for only two years. It might not work. Like that happens sometimes. You hire somebody you think they're a the great person for the job, and then you know six months in, a year later, two years, it's not working. So I, I, I you know, I can buy it. But I have to say, John Flint was a lifer at mm. HSBC, so he's no, he's not a newbie that's come in from the outside, but that's maybe what they need. Um, Brian Kaplan, the editor of The Banker, wrote a blog this week, and it was talking about sort of the CEO cycle, right? So obviously, uh, Stuart Gulliver, who was the CEO before, came, went, came in, well, came in, was promoted to CEO, uh, and again, he was another lifer, uh, but he was um, came in to totally change the bank, totally like just tear everything up, which he did. But then you need a period of stabilization, right? And John Flint seemed to have delivered that, and HSBC's results actually show that. Um, so it came as quite a surprise that uh, they got rid of him. Um, but then what are they going to do now, I think, is the big question. Are they going to, like, uh, Noel Quinn is is in, in place at the moment, but he's an interim CEO. Are they going to look for, you know, a CEO from outside of HSBC to really drive this change that so far they're talking about? So I have a bit of history with uh, this, this company <laughs> as well. Um, thanks for choosing topics I know something about. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I guess um, I was pretty shocked actually by uh, less than two years actually, mm. uh, John John going, um, particularly on the back of pretty good results. I think the results were up sixteen uh, percent on pre-tax profit, which generally is pretty good for a CEO. Um, and particularly, I say, being in internal employment, so it wasn't like a unknown quantity. I mean, being blunt, uh, he was one of the reasons I left HPC. So. Um, uh, so I was pitching at the time some, uh, I guess, um, fairly new ways of doing things and uh, desire to do things a bit differently. Uh, and I, I was pretty sure he was going to be the next group CEO, and he was pretty anti that, very much much more big spend, traditional, incremental type approach. Um, so, it w- But it wasn't like that was an unknown thing when he was appointed. Um, flip side, Noel Quinn, I, I have a huge amount of time for Noel, so... I think there's a lot of speculation in the press. It's not a permanent uh, thing, but um, I think Noel's a, a really great guy. And uh, um, yeah, I think commercial banking is the heart of HPC. So uh, Noel was, or is a commercial banker. So I think uh, great to see him at the top. Can I ask a question, um, given that, you know, your knowledge in this area, is Noel Quinn a different sort of person in terms of, we're talking about lifers and, and can lifers be the person that can drive the change in a bank, which is what well, I guess we're discussing to a certain level here. Is it, I don't know him. I don't know his style, but it, is he is he got a different approach to this? Maybe I, I certainly found him very open minded to to new ideas, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, sort of certainly let me kind of do a whole bunch of things that were somewhat different at the time. And um, I know just back some more of that uh, since since I left. So um, yeah, I think I guess I've got a lot, a lot of time for the guys. A um, really decent kind of open minded guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I had dinner with him. Um, I don't know a year or so ago. Um, yeah, very, uh, very interested, asked lots of questions, really sort of was exploring a lot in, in the sort of new fintech space and what was going on. So it's going to be interesting to see, um, see how that goes. 
Yeah, I think for me, one of the most interesting bits, though, is the is the statement senior roles. Yeah. So usually when you think of job slashes, you think of the automated positions. Um, and it's interesting if you're slashing so many senior roles, who's deciding the strategy, who's planning for the future? You know, you do need qualified personnel to think about those things. Well, I guess you need people who are qualified, but also people who are not stuck in the traditional way of Absolutely. doing things and that but now the, you're looking to change. It begs the question, how, how many people are we going to be rehiring? Mm. Sure. Well, two other European-based banks, Barclays and Societe Generale, is that how you say it, have also announced job reductions and Credit Suisse has announced a hiring freeze. So uh, it looks like across the board there, there might be a bit of uh, resizing going on. Just... Um Quick plug, we, we are hiring about $500 <laughs> a month <now>, so. <laughs> Any of those bankers looking for somewhere to go? Only if you're super smart and great, though. But, uh, <laughs> so there you go. Now. If, uh, if, if um, you, you, you're up for that. From a pen to ad, we've now gone to a revolute <laughs> hiring ad. We'll just give you a few minutes to, uh, <laughs> to pitch, shall we? But I also think that there's a silent sort of revolution happening inside the banks, which is driven by technology. So the artificial intelligence, machine learning, and it will be all that sort of middle layer people that are going. And you look at the numbers that are coming out for the banks, like Deutsche Bank um, announced in July 18,000 jobs are going across its global business, Credit Suisse, Wells Fargo, like they're all, they're all doing it but they're doing it, to me, a little bit by stealth. So they're not really saying exactly what's making these changes. But then I also think that the governments, you know, like global governments or national governments, need to really understand the change that's coming in order to be able... Because all of a sudden you'll just have all this these people that were, had a very good job were paid very well out of work, mm. right? And what does that do to the economy? Well, well, that, that digital shift leading to a change in operating model, I guess, you know, Richard, you've seen that pretty well, HSBC, TSB, now Revolut. I mean, the, the absence of now a pyramid where someone's uh, seniority is how many thousand people and what kind of divisions do you run to a, you know, a job where you're COO, which I assume means you're actually really embedded in delivery teams rather than having a massive staff that's policing the police who are policing, you know, eventually people who are doing work at the bottom. So one of the things I love about Revolut is, I mean, the sort of data and technical skills are very much at the heart of the business because, I mean, ultimately, banking is about people and uh, data to manage things like risk and so on. So people need data skills. Um, and, and so we, we do a, a, I'm sure this is kind of well known, a home task uh, test for pretty much every role, including, I mean, I did it. Um, pretty much every role in the company does some sort of pretty quantitative analytical task. What with, was the home task for, not, for COO role? Secrets, <laughs> I mean, large data sets, um, kind of merging large data sets and identifying trends in that. Uh, so, I mean, I'd probably say 90% plus of people I've worked with in banks wouldn't be able to do that sort of activity. But clearly you've got to fill fill to people that want to work in a technology and data-driven mindset. Just Sorry, just to that point, which links into Joe's point, I think what's interesting when talking about some of the stealthy ways in which banks are, are reducing their workforce, you um, hear a lot of, we're cutting 8,000 jobs, but we're creating 4,000 new jobs in new departments and we're going to offer training to our staff that are being made redundant to fill those roles. So I think there is some understanding, but there is a, a skills gap, um, um, to, to your point, Richard. But um, I don't Do you know not know think that that's be. just like not scaring the cattle, though, I, in well, some yes, respects? I mean, that's probably a bit amount. blunt. 
but but you know what I mean. <laughs> well, that it's like, I, I, uh, yeah, everything will be fine. Don't worry. There'll be a lot of retraining going on. You can all be digital too. It's like, really, that's I, not going to happen. I, well, no, I, I I agree with I agree that there probably is a part of that. I agree that it's not going to happen for all those people. But I do think I I approve of the mentality. I'm optimistic about the mentality. Oh, so, Sarah. <laughs> but the people are scared. So you know, we we sell software solutions to banks, AML, yeah. But the people. Uh, the people behind that um, and the people that you're approaching are often reluctant to pass things upwards, sidewards, downwards, mm. because they are scared that you might automate them out of a job. Mm. And it's scary how often that happens. And to go back to Joy's point, um, there may become a point where governments and regulators are going to say, you can't fire them, you've got to retrain them. I mean, it's, that sounds like a long way in the future, but to your point, that... that yeah, I don't think it's that long in the yeah. future, actually. Um, and I think a lot of banks keep talking about it, but whether they're doing it or not. And then also, you know, who who is actually creating, the, you know, like where are they sending these people to be reskilled and and trained up and things like that? That's a whole other question, isn't it? So on that cheery point, let's move to the other side of the world. Uh, Australia, Sarah's favourite country, if you didn't know, um, has passed some consumer data uh, rights legislation. Do you want to take this one, Sarah? Oh, I would love to. Uh, so the CDR, as it's known, um, I won't go into the full details of it. But basically, it's what's been passed is like the legal foundation for what will become. It's not open banking, it's open data in Australia. And this is what I think is really exciting. So it's still got to go through the rubber stamping process. And that means it has got to go past the um, the, the, the competition watchdog in the country. Um, and the, the biggest, toughest challenge they still have to do is to um, agree on security standards, which is the biggest problem we have with open data everywhere. It's like, who, whose fault is it if it goes wrong, basically? Yeah. And how do you ensure it's secure? Which I agree or understand, sorry, are, are the biggest hurdles of legislation but what um, I'm excited about is that Australia has watched what other people have done and thought we can go one better than this mm. so it's not what will come in if it when it's all rubber stamped what will come in in February is the big banks will have to open up APIs to um, not just uh, payment transaction accounts but also credit cards um, and then within the next year they're looking at doing mortgages and loans as well and then if that goes well the next phase is supposed to be utility data and telco data now this is a long way in the future, and there's a lot of things to go. Um, you could go wrong in between, but I the, the the way in which they've looked at something, they've seen how it's worked elsewhere, and they've um, adapted it. I'm going to pause there. I'm giggling because there's a man riding an electric scooter outside the window. Which, if you listen to my other podcast, and Sure Tech Insider, you will know are illegal. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Back to Australia. I'm excited by the potential this has, and even if it doesn't work, I'm excited by the thought of the open data. There are a lot of hurdles. There's a long way to go. But um, I'm being optimistic again. Was the date February 2020 for implementation? Uh, actually, it was uh, June 2019. Um, and then the four big banks, actually one of the four big banks struggled. And it's been pushed out to February 2020. Uh, so, so they've been working on this for a little while before. And it wasn't just like today they decided February. Oh, no, 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 no. Slightly tough. No, no, it's been, the, legislation's been, the legislation's been going through for a while. And um, for those of uh, those of you who haven't heard me on my Australia spiel before, the Australian banks are very, um, the, the market's own up. They're hugely profitable. They haven't had a recession so far. What that means is they've had an awful lot of money and they spent it on um, digitizing and to some extent digitalizing as well their services so most of the incumbent banks apps in Australia would knock any other bank in any other country of the six because they're they're kind of good at technology so open APIs they've they've had their eye on for a while 
What's your view, Joy? Well, I have to say, I was doing an interview this morning with a large European bank, and they actually pointed this out. So the the feature I'm writing at the moment is on PSD2, Payment Services Directive 2, and where we're at, especially around the strong customer authentication. Uh, And they actually pointed this out. They were like, this is a big step forward, but it's it's also the ability, which goes so far beyond PSD2, which is really about giving that 360 view overview of your finances, right? So it's not just your current account. It's, as Sarah pointed out, it's all these other things. And at one point, they're even going to open up for mortgages, uh, personal loans, all of that kind of stuff. And I just think it's... um, uh, I think it's interesting that Europe, which is in the thralls of actually putting in place PSD2 as the basis of open banking, is already looking beyond that and saying, okay, this is where we need to be, and Australia is already getting there. Yeah, and I'm conflicted on this because on one hand, I think, look, take a smaller problem that you can deliver and scale up. And we've spoken to Imran Hussein Gawala uh, from the Open Banking Implementation Entity before and there, uh, and uh, Gavin Littlejohn as well, who's uh, one of the fintech people on on that uh, group. But their view of, look, we start with banking, but pensions are coming along and then savings accounts and non-spending accounts and all of this stuff that eventually it does build up because it's only when you get that full financial picture that it works. Mm. So I, 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 the startup in me prefers the like nail it for something that's transactional and then layer this on. I do worry that that's a very big question if suddenly it's like open banking data for every financial product like the the speed with which you can you can make that work is but difficult. The Australians do speed very very well. If you look at how quickly they've... Well, not apparently. Well, you were saying February 2019, <laughs> and now it's 2020. It's only six months. If you want to talk about <laughs> SCA, that's SCA is going to be 24 months delayed. Um, that's a conversation. It's not a, co- it's not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joy, please take over. I, I can't continue. But I have to say, I think it's the fact it's a very concentrated market for one. It's a small market and it can do these things and it can move quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So I do think they are moving quite quickly. Um, uh, And uh, yeah, I just think, but it's it's that broader view, but it's also the broader view that it's not just banking services. Mm. They're already thinking about bringing in the telcos and things like that. So all of a sudden, it's not just you know, it's not just the banks, but it's mm. the whole ecosystem of how you create a digital life and, and how you manage your finances because your utility bills and your telco bills are a huge part of mm. your, your financial life. Yeah. But it is the wonderful benefit, I think, as well, of not being the first mover in this kind of space. You know, if you if you come as a second, third, or whatever, you come a bit later on, then you see the problems and the mess ups that people have in the area and you you can benefit from that and concentrate it into your own space. If anybody would like to know more about that, I've just written a blog called The Globalization of FinTech, which you can find on Forbes and it uses Australia as a case study. Well this just seems to be a, a like an ad laden <laughs> zone. I, I like I I'm I'm gonna have to uh, to get to get a bit more strict. I don't know what I'm gonna advertise in a minute, but I've got to think of something. So moving on to what is actually my favorite story of the week. I my, my mind is blown. 20-year mortgages hit zero for the first time in history. So on Wednesday this week, uh, Nordea Bank uh, said that it'll start offering a 20-year fixed-rate mortgage that charges no interest. So Danes can now get 30-year mortgages at 50 basis points. That's half a percent. I think they can get 10-year mortgages at a negative interest rate of minus 50 basis points. So like bankers in the room, tell me, like, how does this magic happen? <laughs> Why are people looking at me? 
it's insane, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess um, it, it is completely insane. Uh, clearly, there is a there is some rationality behind it in terms of actually how if you are a bank and you have deposits, you have to do something with those deposits. And the alternatives currently in Europe are not super attractive. It's fair to say because you have a whole variety of negative yielding assets you could put that money into. Um, how you get to this position is, is insane. <laughs> well, the, you can justify the rationality on the moment, but the, the wider picture is Yeah, I mean, is, the, is the, the fact that Denmark has, has had negative central bank rates for longer than any other country, and, and I'm so not an economist, but the, the view that actually you're incentivizing people to spend their money, to flow it through the economy, i.e. if you put it in somewhere that's static uh, and you're not doing anything with it, then you're effectively paying the bank to hold that money now, which then drives it into the economy and then keeps that things going. Now that I can understand as like a, as another weapon in the armory of like fiscal stimulus, but, uh, but 30 in mortgages? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's insane as well. But but uh, what I wanted to say is this: is that there has already been like a sort of an overheated housing market in Nordics, more like Stockholm and things like that. But there, that has already happened, and I think this will just fuel it. I just think this is, uh, you know. <laughs> To to um just to, to your your point, Jason, um, I read a few weeks ago that some of the Swiss banks are considering charging negative interest rates for very very rich individual clients, um, and I wondered if this is kind of a, a, a trying to trying to balance out. I, I don't know if it balances out, but it just, it just to me it was interesting that, 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 that what I'm saying is that we're playing with interest rates in a way that I'm not sure I've seen before. So like charging rich people to hold their money rather than giving them money to hold it, and then giving people you know f- free mortgages. I'm trying to get my head around it because it's not, as somebody who is not an economist but did do economics for at, at university and, and at A level, I, I can't, this is new to me. I Does haven't it feel got like any uncharted territory. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, actually, large corporates uh, and financial institutions have been charged negative interest rates by other banks for mm. quite a while, actually. And then it does kind of spread from there into high net worth and then to kind of retail and business banking. And um, I mean, it's not sustainable to have a negative interest rate environment set by a central bank. And you look at I mean, German government bonds, they're negative. I mean, all major safe assets in Europe are pretty much negative. Uh-huh. Um, and so there's kind of, a, there is some rationality to them why you might lend money negatively, though. It, it is one of the most difficult concepts you can ever imagine to get your head around. And I, I guess That's a relief. I'm not going mad. It is difficult I, to get I, your head around. I, I'm, I'm an economist by, by kind of training as well. Like, Basically, you, you sort of slightly broken on the actual levers of the economy at that point because yeah. clearly um, the whole point is that you want you want to be able to use interest rate as a driver of uh, demand in the economy to sort of essentially uh, limit inflation um, while yeah. also um, maximizing economic growth. And this position we're in of uh, negative interest rates, quantitative easing, it's it's just highly unprecedented. And the problem is then you apply another economic shock to that. You you've got no levers at all to play with. And hence why startups are raising hundreds of millions. I'm going to go back to that story. Right. So we're not all moving to Denmark then? I'm moving to Denmark and just buying as much property as I can because <laughs> we know that that all ends up really well when people start buying buy-to-lets and, uh, and mortgages go I, I am off to the Nordics for holidays uh, in a week's time. And I, I'm just looking at how expensive it was 
But I didn't look at the right things. Yeah. <laughs> I should you buy a damn house, not some food. Yeah. yeah, you look at the price of beer, but there actually, yeah. Richard, don't get a hotel room. Get a house. Get a house. <laughs> <laughs> They'll pay you to do it. You've got a house for 30 years, summer house. And they're paying me. Yeah. <laughs> Job done. Right, so, and finally, although that felt like an and finally story <laughs> in Bizarro world, um, Indonesia has shut down 826 fintech startups this year alone. So the Indonesian Financial Services Authority, known as the OJK, has turned to the police and public for help to track down illegal fintechs operating without a license. To date, they've shut down 826 startups, and these firms operate on platforms such as website, mobile apps, and social media, making it difficult for uh, authorities to detect them. The illegal fintech firms often charged exorbitant interest rates and resorted to an ethical recovery practices. Now, this is where it gets a little bit questionable for me. Like, fintechs or loan sharks? Yeah. Like, is, it, is a loan shark who does something on a platform now a fintech? How, like, how does that work? I think if a fintech is a financial services company that uses a techno- that is based on technology and uses technology, then yes, you can be both a fintech and a loan shark. Yeah, it's an interesting one. My first reaction when I thought about the article was actually, you know, I work with a lot of early stage fintechs who aren't really clear whether or not they're in the regulated space or not, because they're actually doing services, which even the regulator will tell them, "Mm, we're not sure yet whether or not you even need a license. But 826 is a ridiculous number. But also the service where I give you some money, you give me 10 times that amount, or I break your legs is is a fairly traditional one I hear. (laughs) <laughs> How do you do the break legs digitally thing? <laughs> you have to come in a branch and they have to set up a branch, they have to have a partner, it gets complicated. Because that was also my question when I read the story. I was a bit like, okay, illegal fintech, what does that actually mm. mean, mm. right? And so to, to your point, I just think that, uh, you know, there's some are in the regulated space, some aren't. But, yeah. Did, does anybody know anything about Indonesian's fintech? regulation regime like it's not a market I know very well at all I know that it's a market that is prime for growth I know it's one of those markets in it uh, everybody's got a smartphone and nobody has a credit card and you know that therefore it is a prime target for, for this kind of service not the breaking leg service for fintech services sorry I should be clear on that um, but I don't know anything about the regulatory regime no no there. I mean some of the background story to this was that there are prize market for fintech startups with about 90% of its 260 million population not carrying credit cards and the majority have no access to formal banking services exactly. so it's just ripe for um for the kind of leapfrog uh digital sort of fintech banking stuff that happens there is this a regulator not keeping up with innovation classic story well, i mean i guess it's not the only country right as well i mean i remember china peer-to-peer a year or two ago years mm. ago a thousand i think some like that peer-to-peers got shut down uh i mean i guess it depends on how how much you want to regulate at the start versus regulate later in terms of uh, do you want to let innovation boom and then control it or do you want to um, kind of restrain innovation and uh, try and restrain risk it's uh, I mean, UK is no total stranger either to this stuff right uh, I won't name the companies but there's been a few uh, few failures in recent weeks in the EMI space in the peer-to-peer space yeah. Um, so yeah I, I think you've you got to accept some failure but it's how much failure you accept as the, the government and the regulator Definitely. I think the regulator, you know, definitely needs to play a part there. But I think the bigger question is about the 90, 90% yeah, of a huge population. That's a cultural shift from people who deal differently with money and resources than we could ever imagine. And getting those people into a space where they understand the merge of technology and finance is it's a million miles off. 
And actually understanding what licensed or unlicensed means even for the people who are using it. So in the UK, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm quite used to seeing, you know, those those signs at the bottom of adverts saying, you know, your deposit is not protected or like if you, you only invest what you can afford to lose or that kind of stuff. We're kind of conditioned to that. But if you have a, a, a market that isn't, then how do you do that as well? Absolutely. If, if the 90% of your population require no consumer protection from the regulator, for example, then what's your regulator doing? Well, on that note... Wow, I think we just criticised all the global regulators on the <laughs> final notice of the show. For those that are listening, we didn't really mean it. Okay, that wraps up this week's show. Thanks so much for all our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Joy. Uh, so you can find me um, at, at Joy McKnight on Twitter, uh, but also at thebanker.com. And when does your PSD2 story come out? Uh, it comes out in September for the Cyboss issue. Excellent. Richard. So LinkedIn's probably best to do a Twitter, but it's uh, not quite as um, maintained as my LinkedIn, so try the LinkedIn or richard.davies at revolute.com. For people who want to, to have Those a home task. Jobs, <laughs> just, uh, they're, they're the one. Simon? Yeah, I'd say definitely LinkedIn is the easiest way to contact me. Excellent. Sarah? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, if you're genuinely interested in the Forbes article I mentioned, you can find that on Forbes.com under FinTech. And you can also find me hosting our sister podcast at InsureTech Insiders. Perfect. As for me, you can find me at Jason Bates on Twitter. What did you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at FinTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, basically everywhere that David Breer has a, an account. <laughs> or just search for FinTech Insider. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.